Our scripture this morning is from Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is God's word to us. Thank you, Emily. For those of you who don't know me, my name is JJ. I help oversee our leadership development across our congregations here at Frontline and, and particularly embedded and love our congregation here in Edmond, and I'm excited to get to open God's word together with you today. Pray with me over this text. Lord, we come to you, empty hands, open hearts, with expectation, we're asking you to speak to us through your word. We're asking you to meet us in these verses. We're asking you to pour out a fresh measure of yourself. We ask that your presence would be thick in the room to bless, to instruct, to guide, to bind up, to heal. Help us, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Rachel Dolezal, president of a NAACP chapter in Spokane, Washington, resigned in 2015 in the midst of controversy over her racial identity. Many of you in the room still remember this story. She received public scrutiny that year when her white parents publicly stated that she was passing herself as black. In the aftermath of the controversy, Dolezal was dismissed from her position as an instructor in African studies at Eastern Washington University. And in an interview later that year, Dolezal publicly acknowledged for the first time since the controversy began that she was, quote, biologically born white to white parents, but maintained that she continued to identify herself as black. Dolezal has gone on record as saying, quote, for me, how I feel is more powerful than how I was born. If somebody asks me how I identify, I identify as black. Nothing about whiteness describes who I am. I mentioned Dolezal's story to you because it's probably in part a symptom of the age in which we increasingly find ourselves. We're living in an age where each of us is increasingly encouraged to find our own meaning in life by giving expression to our own feelings and desires. Less and less is meaning something that exists objectively out there. More and more meaning is something I discover or I construct subjectively in here based on how I feel. As some of you can probably personally attest to, this approach starts out feeling very liberating, but it can often end up feeling quite terrifying. And worse, nobody seems to much mind what meaning people invent for themselves behind the four walls of their home until, 
like Rachel Dolezal, it uncomfortably spills out into society and surprises everyone around them by how it angers and unsettles others. We all want to be happy, but there are so many happinesses. Before you settle the question of liberty, what you're free to do, what constitutes the good life for you, you're going to have to settle the question of identity. In the words of Wendell Berry, what are people for? And before you settle the question of identity, you have to settle the question of authority. Who really has the power to decide who you are? And who has sufficient insight to really teach you who you are? Here in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 15, we're going to see described for us a God who's there, who's not silent. We'll see a God described for us who's chosen as the pinnacle of his authoritative self-communication in all of human history, his very own son. In essence, Mark, in writing his gospel and preserving it for us, is saying to us, God has finally broken into our broken world. Good news. So the first thing I want you to see here in our text, in verses 9 through 11, is because God's broken into this broken world, we can finally please the Father through Jesus. Because God's broken into this broken world, we can finally please the Father through Jesus. Look again at verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Mark wants us to see that we can please the Father as Jesus stirs our anticipation, builds our anticipation for what it must be like to have this kind of relationship with the Father. All these people are standing in line to be baptized in the river, and suddenly, without any notice at all, a divine voice thunders out of the sky, this is my son, who I love, who I value beyond price, who I've sent to you. Value him. Listen to him. Be amazed by him. Bow your knee to him. When he speaks, I speak. He carries all authority. He's a man, but he's more than a man. He's the God-man, he's my beloved son. In his baptism, Jesus is being commissioned by God and he's being commissioned as God in human flesh. And this isn't the beginning of Jesus' relationship with his father. It's merely an expression of the depth of their existing relationship. Jesus, in this moment, doesn't become God's only and beloved son. He never wasn't. As the 19th century Anglican Bishop Hanley Moore wrote, nothing shines more radiantly in the entire New Testament than the eternal love of the Father for the Son. This is why the author of the Hebrews can say in Hebrews chapter 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint, thumbprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe 
by the word of his power. Mark's saying, these things didn't happen in a corner. Nobody imagined this. This wasn't a mass hallucination. Everybody saw it and heard it at the same time. God split the sky and spoke, and then Jesus got up out of the water, and then things started to get really crazy. And yet this moment was already the most amazing thing these people had ever seen or heard. Mark wants us to see that we can please the Father as Jesus stirs our anticipation of what it might be like to share in that kind of love. We can not only please the Father as Jesus stirs our anticipation, but we can also please the Father as Jesus bears our guilt, as Jesus bears our guilt. Notice the Father says of Jesus in verse 11, with you I am well pleased. If Jesus' baptism was for repentance, like everyone else lining up on the side of the river, that wouldn't make, up any, make any sense because Scripture teaches us again and again that he was sinless. In fact, he had to be sinless or he couldn't have been the perfect sacrifice that could take away our sins. So then, what was Jesus doing getting baptized? In Matthew's account of this same moment, John the baptizer himself is dumbfounded and Jesus has to calmly tell him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Matthew 3.15. So what's the purpose of Jesus' baptism? Well, let me be coy and answer that question with another question. Why is the God of Scripture triune? Three co-equal, co-eternal persons in one being. Well, the short answer is that's what perfection looks like. But for our immediate urgent needs, the answer is because only a triune God could ever be a hope for us of being rescued from our brokenness and restored to relationship with God. If I'm bleeding out in the ER, I don't care in that moment why the ER doc picked this profession and not another. In the moment, I just want to know if he can stop the bleeding. The God of the ancient Christian Scriptures, as revealed in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, contrary to the gods of every other religious framework in the world, is the only God who can himself stop our bleeding and bring us back into relationship with himself because the Father has planned our rescue, the Son has accomplished our rescue, and now the Spirit continually applies to us the rewards of that rescue. These mass baptisms that are being conducted by John the baptizer are a reminder for Mark's readers that God's just anger against our failure to love God and love our neighbor is hanging heavy over the heads of God's people. And so in one sense, Jesus participating willingly in this baptism is an acknowledgement on his part that God's anger is righteous and real. But it also foreshadows the fact that Jesus himself will someday bear the full weight of that anger and will satisfy it completely. There's a heavy weight of just anger to bear, and the people standing on the riverbank with Jesus don't know that God himself will bear it. There's a heavy price to be paid, and someday soon God himself will pay it. And so Jesus is identifying himself with his people, not because he's guilty, but because he intends to bear their guilt. He identifies with us. He goes down into the water just like everybody else. But he's mercifully not us because he comes up out of the water like nobody else. 
In this way, Paul could later write about Jesus in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We can please the Father, Mark is hinting to us, as Jesus bears our guilt. But we can also please the Father as Jesus bestows on us our true identity. God is saying here in this scene, I want you to know me. I want you to know what I'm really like. I'm a loving father. And you are spiritual orphans who have wandered far too long in desolate places without finding any rest. You've got so much of this so-called freedom and you've got so little real fathering in your life. I want to adopt you as my own so that I might do good to you. And now, I'm going to speak to you more clearly than I ever have before, and I'm going to illustrate my words with a visual aid, because there's no God in heaven who's not like Jesus, so look at him, and you'll finally see and hear my heart for you. Bishop Mool, nothing shines more radiantly in the entire New Testament than the eternal love of the Father for the Son. And that's the love that the Father wants to pour out on you. That's the love that Jesus precisely came to give you access to. That's the love that the Spirit wants to drive home to your hearts today in such a way that it rearranges all the furniture in your life and turns on all the lights. You're swimming in cultural waters, constantly telling you that you're free to construct any identity that you please for yourself. There are no limits. There are no consequences. Your options are as limitless as your imagination and your opportunity. But in the biblical account, identity isn't invented or constructed. It's bestowed. It's given by grace. And it can only be bestowed by somebody with enough authority and enough kindness to make it stick. And identity really, really matters because identity always drives our actions, as most of you have already discovered. And so learning our identity as adopted sons and daughters through experiencing the love of the Father through Jesus always has to come before any hope of obeying the Father. The Christian story is pretty simple. God always goes first. He sets his love on us. He forgives us. And only then does he invite us to obey him as a glad response to his gracious, always going first love. Our obedience isn't the condition for his love. It's the outflow of our hearts being melted by his love. The Christian story is that we don't change in the hopes that he might love us. He loves us so that we might be changed. That's precisely why Jesus is going to say later down in verse 15 that what we must believe in order to be rescued is the gospel, a word that simply means good news. You want to be rescued? You're going to have to first be loved so that you might be changed. You're going to have to lean your whole weight on the good news. We can please the Father, Mark is hinting to us, as Jesus bestows on us our true identity. So because God's broken into this broken world, not only can we finally please the Father through Jesus, Mark is saying, but we can also 
finally pass the test like Jesus. Because God's broken into this broken world, Mark is saying we can finally pass the test like Jesus. Look again at verses 12 and 13. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. And we can pass the test like Jesus by receiving the invitation to partake in his suffering, to share in his suffering. Verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Jesus kicks off his earthly ministry, not as a powerful and magnetic public personality, but as a suffering servant alone in the desert. He's just been given the cosmic vote of confidence. He just got God's stamp right out in public in front of all his neighbors. He's got authority and intimacy and co-eternity. It's time to go on the talk shows. Imagine what big, exciting plans might be next for Jesus. But instead, he immediately goes alone into the wilderness to suffer as a servant. And isn't that, after all, why he came? None of his followers could ever quite seem to get this until after he ascended back to his father. In fact, on the very doorstep of his agony and execution, at the last supper, his followers are still sitting at the table arguing and jockeying for political power right in Jesus' presence. This is after years of Jesus' daily teaching and modeling for them, humble servant leadership, but their association with Jesus keeps going to their heads and feeding their personal dreams of celebrity and selfish glory. And so here on the eve of his agony, he has to stop and yet again, for the thousandth time, patiently try and teach them in the words of Luke 22, hey guys, I'm among you as one who serves. We could pass the test like Jesus by partaking in his suffering. And we could pass the test like Jesus by playing back all our past moral fears and letting him record over those failures. And immediately as I say that, I realize this is a totally obsolete sentence because nobody has anything that can be recorded over anymore. But in the old days, I had some pretty great VHS tapes of some Michael Jordan finals. And, you know, if you recorded over those with Murder, She Wrote, I would be frustrated. Okay? We can pass the test like Jesus by playing back all our past failures and letting him record over them. Let me explain. Verse 13 tells us, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Jesus is presented here with real and meaningful choices just like Adam once was, just like Moses once was, just like Israel was again and again. Will he obey? Is he going to trust God even when the pain becomes excruciating, even when the lies become particularly persuasive and enticing because they represent a way out, a prospect of relief? Before the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost after Jesus ascended back to his Father, the Spirit was only given to special people on special occasions for special purposes. And so God's people through the centuries without the indwelling spirit were like a ship without a rudder and they kept wandering in the wilderness and wandering back to their sin. But now it's precisely the spirit 
going with Jesus, actually driving Jesus, verse 13 tells us, into the wilderness. Why? Precisely to put this spirit-empowered God-man on a pedestal, full display, in the place of Israel's greatest defeats, Israel's greatest failures, Israel's collective historic shame, a desolate place, a junkyard for human arrogance, a place where the spiritually proud and self-reliant go to be laid low and taste defeat, the wilderness. But the Spirit steers Jesus directly into the eye of the storm, not to sink him, but to show his seaworthiness, to brag on him a little bit. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Israel was described time and again in the Older Testament as God's son. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years as punishment for their unwillingness to just trust God one more time on the doorstep of the land promised to them after God had, I don't know, delivered them from slavery, drowned a pursuing army, fed them with bread from the sky. But they couldn't summon up enough trust that God would hand them the land that he'd spread out like a feast before them. Jesus, Mark tells us, faced Satan's temptation in the wilderness for 40 days to show us that he's the true and better Israel. He's not going to let his hunger trump his trust in God. Even Moses, one of the greatest men in all of scriptures, died with longing, looking wistfully across the Jordan into land he would never set foot on that God had promised because in anger he hit the rock instead of speaking to it to give God's people water and thus he misrepresented God to the people and he was barred by God from leading them the last mile of their 40-year journey. Here's Jesus, the true and better Moses. He manages to wade into the Jordan on his way into the wilderness to remind us that he's the true and better Moses who always perfectly reflects to us what God the Father's like. There's no God in heaven who's not like Jesus. And he always leads us faithfully into all of God's promises for God's people. Now, it's important that we're not confused at this point. Scripture's clear. God tests us. Satan tempts us. God tests us, our own dark Hearts entice us. This is why James is so painstakingly clear in James 1 when he famously says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Rather, each person is tempted when he is noticed lured and enticed by his own desire. Satan tempts us in an attempt to eat us alive. God tests us to reveal cancer in us that needs to be surgically cut out so it doesn't kill us. God tests us to strengthen us so we don't fall away and we finish at the end. God tests us to encourage us and present back to us how far he's brought us when we feel like we're just spinning our wheels in the mud spiritually. We can pass the test, Mark's hinting to us, like Jesus, by playing back all of our past Failures is the people of God and letting Jesus record over them. 
can also pass the test like Jesus by pressing all the same buttons he did. We can pass the test like Jesus by pressing all the same buttons he did. In other words, Jesus didn't rely on his divinity alone such that he then unwove who he now was, fully divine and fully human. You see, too many Christians through the centuries, out of a good desire to affirm and protect Jesus' full divinity, have often unintentionally diminished his full humanity. One ancient heresy that early Christians strongly rejected even argued that Jesus only appeared or seemed to be human. But those early Christians energetically fighting off this heresy clearly saw that if Jesus isn't fully human, we're toast. It creates all kinds of serious problems for us. First, as some of you have probably come to understand, Jesus had to be fully human in order to save us. He had to be fully human in order to save us. Romans 5, For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Secondly, some of you have probably come to understand that he also had to be fully human to sympathize with us to sympathize with us. This is why the author to the Hebrews can say in Hebrews 4, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, notice, in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So in light of that astonishing reality, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need as many times as we need it. But third, fewer of you probably realize that Jesus' humanity is also crucial for how he sets an example for us. For how he sets an example for us. In the words of one author, echoing probably many of our thoughts, If Jesus is superhuman, then I can admire him. But I don't have to take seriously his call to emulate him. I can never be a superhuman being. Easy for you, Jesus, you've probably thought at one time or another. Whenever you were wavering in your spiritual resolve, you just hit the divinity button and powered through. I I don't have a divinity button. (laughs) But what if Jesus wasn't overcoming temptation and obeying his father that way at all? What if a lot of what we've assumed about the life and obedience of Jesus is wrong? In the words of one scholar, what does the Bible say about whose divine ability was mainly involved when we look at Jesus' life and ministry? We can't unpack this fully here, but the good news for us, straightforwardly, is that Jesus trusted in and depended on his Father, and he depended on the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence and power for his obedience and the majority of his miracles. And I want you guys to look at just a few descriptions of what empowered Jesus' life and ministry according to the New Testament. John 14, 10, Jesus says, The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father, notice, who dwells in me, does his works. Luke 1, 4, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Luke 4, 14, coming out of the wilderness victoriously, Jesus returned, notice, in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. Luke 4, 18, Jesus sits down in the synagogue. The scroll is handed to him to read. He reads from Isaiah 61, 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And Jesus rolls up the scroll 
And with all eyes on him in the synagogue, he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Matthew 12, 28, answering skeptical, suspicious spiritual leaders afraid of losing social and political power in their community, accusing Jesus of casting out demons by the power of the devil. Jesus says, that's not even logical. A house divided against itself can't stand. So alternately, if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Romans 8, how is Jesus raised from the dead? Paul says, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. It was the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead according to Romans 8. In Acts 10, Peter, preaching to an audience, says, You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. Beginning from Galilee, notice, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Why does the Spirit descend on Jesus his baptism? Well, at least one answer is that he was not only fully divine, he was fully human, and he was modeling for us that the only way that we can obey the Father in our humanity is by being filled with and empowered by the Holy Spirit just as Jesus was in his humanity. Guys, we know this, but we don't know it. <laughs> it's the Spirit who enables us to know and love God in a way that actually makes a dent in our day-to-day lives. That's why this kind of deep trust in God and sharp hunger for God stirred up in us by the Spirit is described in 2 Corinthians 13 as the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit who glues a bunch of selfish sinners together like the ligaments of a healthy athlete who's firing on all cylinders in that astonishingly rare reality which is robust and healthy Christian community, it's the spirit that makes the kind of compelling Christian community that's described in Ephesians 4 as only being made possible by the unity of the spirit. It's the spirit who equips and energizes us to push back darkness through gospel proclamation and kingdom demonstration. That's why the unique abilities that God gives every Christian with which to serve others in need are described as spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12. That's why when the early church engaged in bold gospel proclamation, the book of Acts says that they were, Acts 4.31, filled with the Spirit and spoke the Word of God boldly as a result. So I hope you're asking in this moment, how do I get more of the Spirit? The first answer is if you're in Christ, you already have the Spirit. But the second answer is you can have more of the Spirit. For the asking, you approach the Father with boldness through Jesus, and you ask him for more of the Spirit's indwelling power and presence, like a child boldly asking their father for something that they already know their father can't wait to give them because of how much he loves him. That's how you ask for more of the Spirit. We could pass the test like Jesus, Mark is trying to help us see, by 
pressing all the same buttons Jesus did. Because God's broken into this broken world, we can not only finally pass the test like Jesus, but we can also more powerfully proclaim the good news about Jesus. Because God's broken into this broken world, Mark is saying, we can now more powerfully proclaim the good news about Jesus. Look again at verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We can more powerfully proclaim the good news about Jesus by dropping down several more floors in our faith. We can more powerfully proclaim the good news about Jesus by dropping down several more floors in our faith. Let me explain. If you can get it, I encourage you to read a chapter in Timothy Keller's New York Times bestseller entitled The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism. The chapter's title refers to a common objection to the credibility of accounts like Mark's gospel You can't take the Bible literally, is the chapter's title. In a public forum, I once heard Keller describe recovering from a bout with thyroid cancer years ago, and for the first time in many years as a busy church planner in Manhattan, an author, being stuck in bed with nothing to do. So he picked up and carefully read, over the course of several months every day, British Bishop N.T. Wright's 848-page defense of the resurrection as the only credible cause of the existence of the global Christian church entitled The Resurrection of the Son of God. 848 pages of sophisticated and historiographically valid arguments by one of the leading resurrection scholars in the world today. And Keller recalls that when he finally closed the book, He said that even though he'd been pastoring for decades and writing books like The Reason for God, he felt his faith suddenly descending down several more floors that he didn't even know were there. Greater confidence, greater certainty in what he believed. He found himself saying aloud alone in his room. So it really happened after all, didn't it? You see, faith and reason and doubt are always intermingled in every Christ follower. And so we we would do well to work to inform our minds and to strengthen our convictions. Reason and conviction don't automatically produce faith, but faith feeds on and draws strength from reason and conviction. Verse 14, Jesus lived in space, time, history, and came into Galilee and opened his mouth and proclaimed the gospel of God. This really happened. In the words of the title of a book by Francis Schaeffer, the late Swiss theologian, Mark is trying to get our attention and say to us, he is there and he is not silent. (laughs) And this has really happened. I'm reading about, by sheer weight of surviving manuscripts alone, the most historically verifiable ancient life ever recorded in human history. Consider the fact that the canonical gospel accounts, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, were all written at the very most 40 to 60 years after Jesus' death. That immediately. And consider that Paul's letters were written just 15 to 25 years after the death of Jesus. 
and contain in them, if you read them, an outline of all the events of Jesus' life found in the Gospels. And so what this means for us is that the biblical accounts of Jesus' life were circulating the Roman world within the lifetime of hundreds of people who had been present at the events of his ministry like those described here in our passage. Luke says in Luke 1 that he got his account of Jesus' life directly from eyewitnesses who were still alive. And scholars point out how the gospel writers bend over backwards to actually name their eyewitness sources within the text to assure readers of the authenticity of their accounts. In this very gospel, Mark, in Mark 15, says that the man who helped Jesus carry his cross to Calvary, quote, was the father of Alexander and Rufus. What bizarre, esoteric, and highly specific information to throw into that passion narrative. There's no reason for Mark to include their names unless the readers knew or could have access to these men. Mark is begging his readers, Alexander and Rufus, vouch for the truth of what I'm telling you. Go ask them. We can more powerfully proclaim the good news about Jesus by letting our faith drop down several more floors. But we can also more powerfully proclaim the good news about Jesus by demonstrating his kingdom. Jesus announces in verse 15, the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, God's kingdom has come close. It's drawn near because God himself has come close in the person and work of Jesus. The kingdom of God is Mark's way of summing up Jesus' whole life and ministry. But God's kingdom actually starts thousands of years previously with God introducing to the Israelite people the concept that he is king. We got glimmers of it in God's rescue of an entire nation out of slavery in Egypt. It was fleshed out more fully at Mount Sinai where, surrounded by lightning and thunder, God handed down instructions for the good life that leads to flourishing under his rule and reign. But now, the curtain's pulled all the way back. And in the words of one author, in Jesus of Nazareth, the kingdom of God makes a personal appearance. We don't bring the kingdom as the people of God. It's not a spiritual fundraising effort or phone bank by God's people to help God out with his mission. The kingdom of God is the inbreaking, inevitable, unstoppable rule by God himself of God's people in God's place. What Jesus is announcing here as he draws near to us is that the kingdoms of this world are slowly being swallowed up and made the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And it's sometimes hard to see it happening, but it's more real than anything else we can see. The old world, the old realm, the old age is passing away even though we're standing with one foot in it. The new world, the new realm, the new age, the kingdom of God that we're standing in with our other foot is being established by God. It's already here. It's not in fullness. So how do we live in the tension between the already and the not yet of God's kingdom. We live between two ages, two worlds, two realms. And the answer, yet again, is the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit was poured out after Jesus ascended, everything changed. We live between the already of Jesus' first coming and the not yet of his second coming by leaning on and asking for more of and being increasingly guided by and carried along by the Spirit. The Christian life is the spirit-filled 
life. There's no other way to be a Christian. There's no other way to look more and more to Jesus and to look more and more like Jesus than to live the spirit-filled life. That's why Jesus could say to his disciples in John 16, now I'm going back to him who sent me because I've said these things to you. Sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's actually to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper won't come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. Jesus is saying, you're needy. (laughs) You're needy people and you need a helper. We can more powerfully proclaim the good news about Jesus by demonstrating his kingdom as the spirit empowers us and carries us along. The last thing I want you to see is this. Mark wants us to see that we can more powerfully proclaim the good news about Jesus by deepening our repentance, by deepening our repentance. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus explains that the proud, the self-reliant, those who are deceived and distracted by the allure and false promise of what money can do for them, they're going to have a harder time seeing the kingdom of God and entering it. But the poor, the despised, the weak, the humble, the invisible are already standing on the threshold of God's kingdom. But everybody, whether those considered successful in the eye of the world, who have to therefore throw off heavy restraints that are competing for their affections, and those who are invisible in the eyes of the world and therefore ripe for anything that sounds like hope and rescue and redemption, all of us have to bow our heads and walk under the same low doorway. Paradoxically, Jesus is saying the easiest and most difficult thing to do all at once is to, verse 15, repent and believe. All are welcome. Some are going to come reluctantly, falsely thinking they're making a sacrifice. Some will have to leave a lot of stuff at the door in order to fit through. Others are going to run gladly with tears of joy, only too eager to shed their shame and regret for something better. If you're here in this room today, it really doesn't matter how you come. But the Spirit speaking through Mark's gospel will continue to extend the invitation of Jesus that's still echoing down through the centuries and his offer still stands. The door is going to stay open for a little while longer. The only thing that will be damaged in the move is our pride. And fear of just punishment, like many of those people on the riverbank were in the grip of, might work to actually get our attention, as it should, as it probably did for many of them. But it's ultimately the prospect of being received with grace that's going to melt our resistance. This is why church historian Claire Davis has so wisely said, we repent because we know there's grace. If you're here today and there are things that wake you up in the middle of the night, if you're here today and there's memories from your childhood that you wish you could erase, if you're here today and there's things you've said and done that you pray no one ever finds out because you can't imagine them still loving you after, if you're here today and you have more dark days than bright days, If you're here today and you heard a lot of things that sounded like good news, but none of it sounded like good news for you, then you need to hear this truth that we repent because we know there's grace. 
If you stretch out your hand, you won't pull it back empty. Stand with me as we pray. Jesus, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your willingness to stoop lower than anybody so great and glorious had ever stooped so that we might enjoy access to the Father. Thank you for allowing us to share so abundantly in your glory. Thank you for not leaving us spiritual orphans, but sending your spirit to bear witness with our spirits so that we might cry, Father. Lord, I want to I hold up before your attention in this moment those in the room who can't possibly believe that could be true. Lord, I want to hold up for your attention those in whom the image of God has been so slashed and marred that they don't even recognize themselves as made in your image anymore. Lord, we know that when people like that came face to face with you, they wept and they washed your feet with their tears because nobody had ever looked at them like that or talked to them like that. Jesus, send your spirit in this moment to break down defenses, cynicism, hopelessness, despair. Lord, I want to pray a wild and crazy prayer that nobody would leave this room without having known the love of the Father. your spirit on us. We beg you. With the dry and the parched places in our hearts, Lord, water that dry ground as you love to do. Lord, it's good to know that you don't shame us for our dryness and our lack of love for you. we pray that you would send your spirit in waves to wash over the walls we've built. Wash away our shame. We want to look you in the eye. We want to see the love in your eyes that you have for Jesus reflected onto us. Make our hearts believe that's true, Lord, we pray.